Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, China's Future Naval Bases, New Empirical Data Points to Likely Places. Please welcome Thomas Spohr, director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Great to see you all, those in the auditorium here and those uh, joining us online. Either way, we're just delighted you could be with us uh, today. A reminder, please, to silence your phone so we can all be uninterrupted here. Well, if there is one area of bipartisan agreement in this town, of which there are very few, there is one, and that is the danger that the Chinese Communist Party is presenting to the interests of the United States and the Western world. Congress holds frequent hearings on this topic and has actually stood up a select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party to call attention to this issue. But most of the attention thus far has focused on topics like ship counts, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, nuclear missiles, and silos. But today, we're looking at a completely different aspect. For naval power is not just the function of the number of ships and missiles that you have. It is indeed the sum of many factors, logistics, training, and our topic today, naval ports. Amidst the recent tensions about, about Chinese naval activities, ranging from the South China Sea to the Bering Sea, a major concern is, where do they go next? And one way of ascertaining where the Chinese Navy may go next for sustained distant operations is to analyze where they seek bases today. There have been a few places that have been in the news on this front, Equatorial Guinea, Cambodia, and of course the Solomon Islands. But today we're gonna to hear from experts on this topic who can give us some insight into what is shaping China's thinking about such future bases. Prompting this discussion is the publication of a recent report titled Harboring Global Ambitions, China's Ports Footprint and Implications for Future Overseas Naval Bases by Aid Data, a research institution based in Williamsburg, Virginia, on the campus of the College of William and Mary, my alumni who used a range of novel techniques to provide insights to policymakers. For over a decade, they have studied Chinese financial movements and overseas port investments. So I'd like to invite our guests up to the stage here first. Alex Woolley, Director of Partnerships and Communications at Aid Data. He has contributed to foreign policy and wrote one of the cover stories for the fall 2021 issue of that on the U.S. Navy's shipbuilding woes. And in 2022, he wrote a story for foreign policy on the implications for the South China Sea of the sinking of the Russian cruiser Moskva, which was a foreign policy most read story. Alex is a former section editor of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs and a former officer in the British Royal Navy. He holds a Master of Arts in Security Studies from Georgetown University. Also with us is Brent Sadler, who joined Heritage Foundation after a 26-year Navy career with numerous operational tours on nuclear-powered submarines. Brent's assignments include tours on the Chief of Naval Operations Staff at U.S. Pacific Command and as the Senior Defense Official at Malaysia, in Malaysia, rather. 
As Heritage's Senior Research Fellow, Brent focuses on maritime security and the technologies shaping our future maritime forces, especially in the Navy. He is the recent author of the book, U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, which discusses what he calls naval statecraft, a contest China's designs to reorder the world to its interest by playing to the United States' strengths and China's weaknesses. So we're going to start up on stage here with me asking these experts some questions. And then uh, after a bit of that, we're going to go to you, the audience, for your questions, both online and uh, the ones in the auditorium here. So when we get to that portion, please be thinking of a question. If you are online, you can use the application to submit a question at any point in time, and we will queue those up and have them ready. And if you ask a question now and it's subsequently been answered, of course, we won't ask that question again. So I think without further ado, let's get to it here. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Did you come up this morning from Williamsburg? Actually, yesterday. Okay, very the good. The traffic on I-95 is just too diabolical. <laughs> very good. So, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this report. I'm, I'm unaware of anything, you know, similar to it in, in recent years. Could you talk about what sets this report, you know, and the methodology used kind of apart from any other previous works on this topic? Absolutely. So for more than 10 years, a data, William & Mary, has been collecting very granular project-level information on what China is spending overseas. Um, so that typically goes into a very large data set um, that has many, many rows of information um, to help us as well as um, analysts analyze um, China's intentions and strategy around development finance. Um, from that, we have an upcoming data set coming out um, in the fall of this year that will include 20,000 projects looking at all um, official Chinese development finance to 165 countries. From that, we then subsumed a set looking specifically at ports. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to sort of delve a little bit into, into that subject matter since it is obviously um, very newsworthy and of concern. Um, so we then took that data, which incorporates a lot of geospatial information as well as project narratives, a lot of information about financial flows. Um, and then we then combined that with other data um, inputs. So this included looking at how um, the host country of a potential naval base um, aligns in UN General Assembly voting with China. Um, we looked at um, some satellite imagery to look at the ports themselves. We looked at the regime type. Um, of the potential host country um, to, to identify the, the potential ports. Safe to assume that the Chinese Communist Party graciously makes all this data available to you? They, they do not. Oh. Um, and they don't, they don't typically signal um, where their intentions are. We gather this all through open source um, information. We're lucky enough at William Mary to have an integrated team of faculty and staff, as well as uh, more than 100 student research assistants who are engaged year-round um, in scraping this information and assembling it. And then we then try and do deep dives into the specifics. Is it safe to assume, again, this is fascinating stuff, that some of this is not in English, that you have to actually use a native speaker to kind of mine some of this data? So we're very, very lucky to, again, leverage um, our sort of multilingual staff, including students who have you know, many languages, to be able to sort of access information, for example, through um, the host countries, um, uh, their, their depositories of, of, of information. Um, yeah. OK, very good. So uh, Brent, over to you, sir. So. Uh, so we're talking about naval bases. It doesn't sound that ominous and threatening, but what are some of the 
the negative implications if the Chinese Communist Party does establish a new naval base, say, uh, on the Atlantic side of Africa, for example. Well, I know Alex's work at ADAN is that's one of the areas that they're looking at. It's one that we've also looked at here at Heritage is in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa. And of course, Mauritania has a couple interesting ports that are of interest. If in just in that geogra geography, it would be a new entry for China to be that far away. It would about allow them to sustain naval operations, military operations, in the Atlantic, and again, the key transit routes from the Panama Canal, which they have major investment and presence, and also with that trade and that traffic over to Europe and back and forth. So from a trade perspective, high, high uh, interest, but also from a military operational perspective, it could also have. And it's also worth noting, Asuncion Island's not too far away. That's where the United States military does its missile testing mm -hmm. and certification of its uh, rocket forces. So, you know, uh Let's say a Chinese ship makes a port call. It's just a normal port. It can typically buy, you know, bananas and, and diesel fuel. What would be the big deal about uh, the Chinese getting a naval base, if you will, in one of these countries? Well, there's a couple. There's a couple aspects. I mean, the logistics, getting food, medical. Most commercial ports you can get food and medical. Most commercial ports you can also get diesel fuel, mar marine diesel fuel. Uh, High-end, more modern warships require the equivalent of jet fuel, JP-5 for U.S. Navy ships. That's a lot harder to come by. So that's, that's one of the items that if you have a presence and you're invested in, you can make sure you've got that when you need it to sustain military operations. And then there's dry docks and, and repair facilities as well that also okay. enter in the mix. Very good. Alex, back to you, sir. And that is, you know, in your report, which I commend to the audience, it's really a fascinating reading. You identify eight places as potential uh, near-term Chinese naval bases, and you even do us the favor of even ranking or ordering them in, in, in what you think is the priority. But missing is the uh, any port in the Solomon Islands, which has been in the news, lots of people talking about it. Um, it's mentioned in your report, but you don't doesn't make the top eight. Can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so our data collection effort covers um, all Chinese development finance um, investments from the period 2000 to 2021 through 2021. Um, the fairly recent announcement about um, awarding of a contract to a Chinese construction company um, to work in Solomon Islands um, is from this year. So it's a little bit outside our, our existing data set. But we did, we did look carefully at the Solomon Islands and obviously you know, last year they refused a U.S. Navy warship and a, and a British ship from, from docking. Um, it seems like they're being pulled in a, in a few different directions. Um, I think late last year, the leadership there um, looked like it might be leaning back towards Australia to provide some security assurance. Um, and then there's developments this year, obviously, um, such as this recent construction. So from our point of view, um, in some ways, it was less important for us to focus on the specific ports than the regions. So I think we're all agreed that the South Pacific is going to be clearly a, a sort of a target region. We had identified Vanuatu because core to our, our research was tracking the money, mm -hmm. and so where the money has gone. So because that's what we do, we looked at where has China put the most money. Um, at that point, they had not made a significant investment in the Solomon Islands. I think in 2019, they had tried to purchase an SOE in, from China, tried to purchase an island in the Solomon Islands, um, but there had not been significant financial investments. Where we, we looked at Vanuatu and Port Luganville, where they invested something like $78 million um, to sort of upgrade and expand the port there as being our sort of candidate port in that particular region. 
Um, but again, for wherever we looked at, for example, to Brent's point about West and Central Africa, there's a whole swath of ports where they've put massive amounts of money into. Um, and we sort of landed on Caribbean, Cameroon, and Bata, Equatorial Guinea as two of the very likely ports. They're only 100 miles apart. So they're probably going to choose maybe one of those or one of the other ports around West Africa. It doesn't, from our point of view, it's like more, they're going to be, have a base there somewhere in that region. Um, which one it might be, they're not telling anyone. Very good. So as you look at, you said you had a wide uh, range of years. You looked at 2020 to 2020. 2000 to 2021. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, any trends? And so are, and, you know, in constant dollars, perhaps, are they spending more of recent days? Or is this a trend? Can, do you discern a trend there? Um, I don't know about a trend. I mean, there, there has been an observable pause, we think, in infrastructure development generally during the pandemic. Okay. Um, so it looked like they might have, they might have hit pause on um, during that period. Um, but really, the port investments are throughout, throughout the, the entire period. Um, we actually tended to sort of downplay a little bit some of the port investments that were very early on and that were completed. Um, because we also tend to see sort of an increasingly an increasing convergence of the economic and the geopolitical um, from China. So what might have been seen as a, a purely commercial venture 20 years ago, it seems like in, a in addition to the Belt and Road Initiative, China has a number of other initiatives that have a little bit more clear strategic intent. Mm. And so it's very possible that they're, they're sort of uniting a little bit more sort of the commercial and these other you know, a little bit hard, harder sort of um, initiatives that sort of bring those two together. So we, we tended to favor a little bit the more recent um, Chinese investment. I got you. So uh, maybe early on they were sprinkling money over a wide place, and now in more recent years they've become a bit more strategic? I, 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 yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, they were very sort of keen to portray themselves as being very open-handed yeah. with their money. And, um, you know, the narrative throughout has been, um, you know, we are like you. We were, you know, a very poor country not too long ago. Um, we are not colonial, unlike the other sort of powers that have been active in these regions. Um, so we're, we're presenting something completely different. And we just want mutual cooperation and mutual benefits to be generated through the BRI. I think what's interesting as well from our point of view is um, there's a fair amount of public events right now because the BRI is turning 10 this year by sort of most people's count. So from 2013, which is roughly the same time that um, the US launched its Asia pivot yes. as well. Um, so looking at how over the past 10, 12 years, how those two different movements have you know, paralleled and, 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 and differed. Um, but I think there's definitely a move more towards um, a strategic intent mm. to, to these economic investments. OK, very good. So, uh, Brent, I want to go back to you and your book, uh, Brent's book, Naval Power in the 21st Century. You advocate for this use and this tying together of U.S. Uh, diplomatic and naval presence together to kind of create a synergistic effect. Can you talk about how that might address China's pursuit of naval bases? Oh, thank you. Well, I think it's, it's really a useful construct or framing for how to actually compete with China. China's actually merged, I mean, the way they've approached all these things is the economic would lead a military or geopolitical, but now we're seeing the geopolitical is becoming and increasingly backed by more explicit military or naval presence. They've been ex exercising what I would call naval statecraft already. 
And so what the United States needs to look at is reframing its, its the way that it does statecraft and integrate the naval presence with economic development and also with more forceful diplomacy. But the key thing and the work that Alex and his team at ADATA is doing is so wor worthwhile is it helps inform so you can get ahead. Look at certain key factors. And for example, Equatorial Guinea, uh, focusing not on the elites or the power brokers in the countries, which is the Chinese favorite approach, the United States in a naval statecraft construct takes a counterinsurgency where the people, the population, is the center of effort. So looking at helping small and medium enterprises in the waterfront fishing communities, helping the maritime police or the Coast Guard in these countries help better safeguard the local communities, the larger popular uh, money and capital generation in each country's GDP market. That's where the U.S. has an opportunity to kind of push back on some of this. And, and that's one of the aspects of the book. I think that's one of the, so what, what do you do with this data? It's to inform the where next. Right now in Reim, Cambodia, you see some things playing out right now with what looks to be a naval base for the Chinese. Solomon Islands is another place that there could be some room to apply a naval statecraft approach as well. Again, backed by the work of ADAC. Yeah, I, I remember still to this day, it was at least a couple years ago, that all of a sudden this report, at least to me, came out of nowhere, that all of a sudden the Chinese were expressing interest in Equatorial Guinea. Mm -hmm. And I remember it's like, okay, well, why should I care about that? And you were very persuasive in your writing that this actually is a big deal. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Oh, certainly. I think, uh, so when you look at that whole area, the first question is, well, there's a whole bunch of ports the Chinese are investing. They could go to any one of them. Well, it has to align to the factors that ADAT is looking at, the political alignment, the, the, the assurance that that regime in power is going to survive and is going to be favorable to the Chinese. Equatorial Guinea stood out. So it was obvious from that perspective that that would be a place they were going to double down. They also had a footprint there already, economic footprint, the ports. And geography, you can't avoid geography. If you have a deep water port, that's an asset, a strategic yeah. asset. Yeah. And all those things were there. And so why it matters, I mean, the first thing is the missile base or missile range is not too far away at Ascension Island. If you wanted to be the Chinese, you want to watch what we're doing with our nuclear submarine force and what we're doing with our ballistic missiles, well, you'd want to park nearby. That's also similar to what was playing in Kiribati in the South, in the South and Central Pacific, where we have another missile test range as well. So there's an operational piece to this as well as the economics. Great. Thank you very much. So, Alex, a, a question that I'd like to draw from Sherlock Holmes, and that is the, the question of the dog that doesn't bark. And so let's say despite your data and your forecast, China does nothing about a naval base for the next five years or so. Is that, does that mean anything? Should we draw any conclusions from that? Or does that just mean that they haven't, they've decided maybe the time isn't right? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think from our point of view, um, you know, China and Xi have built this enormous Navy, um, now numerically larger than the US Navy. Um, not intended to be a brown water navy. It's clearly a blue water navy. Um, there's uh, a lot of rhetoric that, that China itself deploys about wanting its ships to go further afield. Um, there's been incidents sort of over recent history where um, you know Chinese ships have broken down, have been unable to get repaired, etc., because they don't have facilities. Um, you do see this uh, these ship visits into to different parts of the world. Um, the fact that they you know, have this new aircraft carrier, which is very, a Katowar carrier, which is you know, very you know, similar in, in sort of concept to a US carrier. Um, all of that is for projection, is for being further out, out, out in the world. Um, and then you, know, you also sort of think they do not belong to a 
typical defense alliance like NATO or like the new, relatively new AUKUS. Um, so they don't have relationships with countries where there's an, uh, some level playing field in terms of the relationship where they could base their ships, you know, like the US Sixth Fleet in Naples, for example. There's not that equivalent for China. Um, they're catching up in terms of replenishment at sea vessels, but they're still a little far behind. So if they want to deploy ships further afield, they don't have those relationships with an ally, with a, with a host naval base. They don't have as many replenishment ships as, as um, other modern navies might have. So it makes sense to be looking for a place to have a naval base um, from our point of view. But they definitely, they, they clearly, and we make note of this in the report, they've taken their time so far. Yeah. Um, you know, Djibouti was 2017. Um, and um, back in 2016, China's foreign minister said, we're going to be looking for an increasing number of supply and logistics bases. It hasn't come yet. So there's clearly something which is also acting as a restraint. Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly what it is. But I think it's inevitable the growth of the Chinese Navy is going to continue um, in the next decade. So it's not, it's not like they've reached a, a steady state final number. So they're going to increase the number of ships. You would, like, you would like to have a base, you would imagine. So it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine that there isn't going to be overseas naval bases in addition to Djibouti. Yeah, thank you. So uh, Brent, to that point, this distinction between uh, China embarking on a blue water navy, the pursuit of it, I think they have plans for at least three carriers, I want to say, uh, and yet the lack of any real overseas presence. Is there a contradiction there? I've always had this thought that maybe this fascination they've developed with carriers is is a mirroring thing that they think well great powers have carriers hence we need to have a great powers I mean how, how carrier rather how do you think about that well it's it's worthwhile re refreshing on the history the Chinese denied any intention of ever developing aircraft carriers until they had one yeah and that's like decade plus of, of basically saying that when it became almost impossible to ignore just before they announced they had aircraft carriers so they're finishing up the Type 3, which is the first indigenous flat deck, not a jump, not with a ski jump at the end of it. That allows you to sustain uh, strike missions at further range. It's also, they also designed the Type 901 uh, heavy logistics ship, which can also travel at speed with the carrier. So it's meant, like our carrier strike groups, to have the ability to rearm, because you do combat operations for three or four days, you need to resupply the munitions and the fuel, because uh, it's still a conventional carrier. So by all, by all measures, their Navy has been responding to historic new mission statement by Hu Jintao, the Secretary General, in 2004. 2008, they do anti-piracy missions and off the Horn of Africa. They start doing exercises in large numbers, you know, passing through the Ryukyu Islands in Japan into the Philippine Sea beginning in 2010. That's become commonplace in the last few years. Uh, the bases that they need to sustain, if they're gonna to go to the next step, and that's sustained distant operations, you need a place like Djibouti where you can store munitions and fuel, jet fuel most importantly, because the cruiser that defends the aircraft carrier strike group, the Renhai, the Type 55, uses gas turbines like our high-end warships, so they need jet fuel like the aircraft. And so you have a military base, you can ensure you have access to that critical fuel and the munitions which makes places like Riem, which is on a naval base in Cambodia, stand out mm. as a forward place to reload munitions and to also reload maybe critical fuels, less as a place where you have sailors based. Right, okay, very good. Alex, a question for you. So your uh, report has a section all to its own about Russia, and we know that uh, Putin and Xi have said that their partnership or whatever friendship 
enjoys no boundaries. You know, it's boundaryless or something like that. Nevertheless, uh, in your report, although you talk a fair amount about Russia, Russia, I, no Russian port made the top eight. Was can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, so there, there's one port that um, is actually in our data set, but unfortunately, the amount that China gave is so large, and we actually can't disaggregate what part is only the port. So on the Arctic coast, um, there's a port called Sabeta, which is an LNG facility. Um, and we estimate that China has invested $13 billion wow. into that. But it's a total facility, so that includes the shoreside and, and uh, other associated infrastructure in addition to the port. Um, but because we were unable to disaggregate that, we sort of include it as an asterisk in our, in our, in our data set. Um, and I think, and then at the same time, China also funded the construction of a number of icebreakers mm. um, that, will, that will be using the port. Um, and I think we make, make the broader point that, um, the strategic point that as um, China looks at the success of the BRI after 10 plus years, and increasingly they've built these ports in a vacuum, mm -hmm. these commercial ports, while we were you know, focused on global war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. Um, China now is seeing what is the extent of the BRI, how successful it's being. Um, and in terms of sort of Russia, if, if China gets a lot of pushback against building a naval base, um, do they potentially look at staunch allies like Russia and look at co-locating a naval base, for example, somewhere in Russia? So we mentioned as, as a possibility, Sabeta could be, could be an option. Um, a lot of people do not count it as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, but China itself calls it our Arctic Pearl, wow. um, this port. And um, the Arctic Passage is one of three blue passages, as China calls it, um, so main sea lines of communication. So that's clearly uh, of interest to them. And then we look at um, you know, potentially sort of co-locating at a Russian naval base, for example. Yeah. So Petropavlovsk, for example, on the Kamchatka Peninsula might be an option, or somewhere um, in, in the Barents Sea or, or Kola or somewhere like that. So it would get them the same strategic advantage. And again, they would not have to worry about necessarily persuading a host country um, to join their effort because they're already operating together, their navies operate together off South Africa with the Iranian Navy, et cetera, and they've been doing joint exercises around Japan, for example. So there might be some logic to it, but it is, it is pure speculation on our point. Okay. Uh, presumably, uh, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, are, have been fascinated by your report and asked you over to, to speak to it, or has that not happened um, so thus we, far? We have been doing, doing briefings with, with lots of organizations, and, and the, the invitations are, are okay. coming in. Good. Yeah, I'd like to think that we will avoid strategic surprise and maybe try and get ahead of this before we get the next news flash that the Chinese are in some port somewhere. So uh, do we have a digital question to take? Who's monitoring those? Do we have any, James? Yes, okay, please. Let's have the first one. Question for the panel. Are there, how do you see the differences between how the US, for example, uses bases like in Singapore versus how the Chinese may use, use some of these bases and does that have implications for their ability to project power, specifically in areas like the Atlantic? Great. Who'd like to go? Brent, you want to I take first I'll, crack? I'll start yeah. with that. Okay. Um, so the first real look at this was back in 2014 at National Defense University, looking at different types of models. And there were six different models, if, I re if my memory serves me right. The one that seems to be playing out is this hybrid, where they use a commercial port to support military operations because many of these Chinese entities in a port that they control 
Uh, it's all owned by or controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, even if it is a commercial shipping and or shipbuilder that it's happened to be operating in that port or infrastructure. So that's what we're seeing playing out. And when you see Chinese naval ships visit commercial ports, they're very likely being supported by controlled contractors. Uh, so that model's playing out. But the second, very close second, because you can't move munitions and you can't necessarily do sensitive naval vessel repair, especially in wartime, where you need to have access to large dry docks and you're going to need to be doing highly technical and very sensitive from a security classification, but also from a physical security aspect, repairs to warships uh, that have, have probably had severe battle damage. That means and drives them more to the Djibouti, the actual basing construct. Reem, Cambodia probably is somewhere in, in between, a naval base to allow munitions. Uh, but places like Solomon Islands, I have a big question mark because geography, and also if they're going to operate more distant in the South and Central Pacific, they have to have a place that they can rely on to do repairs and also shift the munitions. And so their model is different, uh, but in many ways at the end of the day, they're going to have bases that look like the United States, I think, more. And, and to Brent's point, our starting point by looking at the financial flows um, was also sort of using Djibouti as that, that sort of template, if you will. So China made a commercial investment in Djibouti right before it made the military um, investment. So there's a, a clear tie-in between sort of the, the commercial and then the political. And to Brent's point, um, in our data set, um, that we released in 2021, we tracked more than 300 official Chinese entities um, that, that, that fund different types of projects. All of them are official, and some of them will have the appearance of being commercial, when in fact they're, they're actually um, you know, official entities of, of the government or a state government or um, a corporation which is ultimately uh, re reporting to the government. In our next data set, which comes out in the fall, we'll be tracking more than 800 official Chinese entities that are carrying out these financial investments. And some of them can be traded on the Shanghai Stock Exchange and still be you know, part of the, of the state apparatus. Alex, when you look at these investments, I'm assuming they're a mixture of what I would call grants. We're just giving you money and some of it's loans. Is there, is there overwhelming? Are they mostly loans or how can you tip us? That, that is typical, typically being sort of the inversion compared to the U.S. model. Okay. So um, the U.S. model typically has been more aid and less what is called like a commercial looking investment, mm -hmm. another financial flow. Um, in China, it's the reverse. The majority are these other financial flows, not aid, not strictly aid, according to the definition of the OECD in, in, in Paris. Um, so the overwhelming are these, these things that may look um, commercial that are that are other types of financial flows. Okay, but mostly not just gratis. I mean, it's money that there's some obligation that there's some collateral or some kind of exactly. Yeah, um, and then there, I should be sort of clear as well. Our data set does not track strictly foreign direct investment, so not strictly private sector okay. investment. So it, it has to come from an official source. Is okay. what is what we're tracking. State-owned enterprise would qualify. Exactly. Okay. Or and even a majority state-owned enterprise okay. is included in our data set. I got you. Okay. So let's uh, look to the audience here, and and uh, Wilson, you have a microphone. I do. Sir, in the, in the middle here, please. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I'm thinking that particularly in the case of the Solomons, uh, the interest is much more for uh, future utilization of uh, ferromanganese nodules and uh, to a lesser extent fishing. 
rather than some grand geopolitical scheme beyond the second island chain. Did you look at all at those uh, resource potentials? Um, we, we do, and we have parallel studies at, at A-Data as well, looking at, for example, transition minerals um, that, that obviously China is very interested in. Um, and we also looked at ports where, and to, to some degree downgraded them in our analysis, if there are ports where there's clearly, um, they're building a port for accessing a, a natural resource, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and we don't think there's any potential military intent. So there's a, um, a port that they financed in Vietnam, which I think is linked to maybe coal production. And so that's clearly, we, we didn't think that that necessarily has a, has a military application. The other thing as well is I think your, your point is that breaking the island chains is clearly going to be sort of one of the main incentives to the Solomon Islands or Vanuatu or wherever else. I think that's strategically. Um, so far the investments though have not been significant enough that you would be able to have a naval facility with dry docks, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, so far the investments have been small. It's like extending a pier or a wharf that might accommodate you know, frigates and destroyers and maybe the, the Fujian, the, the class 03 aircraft carrier. I think that that is logical. But I think in the short term, the Solomon Islands, for example, would be more sort of a, a stopping a naval station and a resupply place rather than a full-scale naval base with an operating dockyard, et cetera. They do have anchorages. They have some deep water anchorages. And so a naval ship going in to, to anchor, limited on the type of logistics you can bring in and how long it takes. And if you're in a crisis, you want to get in and get out quick. That has a consequence. But in peacetime, there are a couple of anchorages there. Uh, of course, to turn some of their shallow water ports into deep water ones, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tell because they're going to have to do significant dredging and they're going to have to do a significant investment on some of the waterfronts before they get there. Yeah, and I guess to the gentleman's point, the Solomon Islands did not make your top eight. So maybe that kind of validates a, a bit of that kind of pulling out the economic ports versus uh, military. Okay, I we saw a lot of hands in here. Let's, yes, ma'am, right here. That was convenient, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you um, for a wonderful, fascinating um, panel presentation. My question is uh, based on a statement that I think um, Alex made regarding China being numerically greater than us now in by numbers in Navy. Will your talks at the Pentagon include strategies and structures to elevate our numbers in um, our Navy men and other military branches? I mean, we... I, when I wrote my article on foreign policy in 2021, um, one of the sort of key themes was addressing the, the numeric mm -hmm. shortfall of the US Navy, um, and specifically how to increase not only construction, but also repairs as well, for example. So there's, as we all know, there's long delays in being able to refit submarines and aircraft carriers, et cetera. Um, there's not enough shipyards. Um, you had an entire period of many decades of consolidation of shipyards is now not enough. Um, and as we know, the U.S. Navy is intending to expand when, in fact, it is contracting mm -hmm. at the moment. So losing ships while, in, while intending to, to grow. So I think it's, it's a, an ongoing conundrum that really, really hasn't, hasn't been solved as yet. Brent will, will know more on this. Yes. Okay. Uh, we, Brent, need to we could do a separate issue. event on this, yes. and Brent could talk for an hour. I, I will mention uh, Congress sees this as well. And last year in the National Defense Authorization Act, they called for a commission on the future of the Navy. And that panel was mm -hmm. supposed to be up and running 
this year by March. And thus far, not all the members have been appointed to that yeah. committee, if you will, or commission rather. It's just kind of out there lingering with no future of it, much less a future of a Navy. Okay, uh, are there questions in the room? Yes, ma'am, over there, please. Thank you so much for a really interesting talk. I really appreciate it. Um, a question that I have regarding um, the investment in naval bases. So can you talk a little bit more about the nitty gritty of how you draw causality between the investment and the future establishment of nasal, naval bases? Sure. Um, so there's not there's not causality um, because we don't know for sure um, where, where China is likely to base ourselves. As I say, what we do is we start with the financials um, and we look at it to some degree from Beijing's perspective. Um, so if you are in China and you have this massive and expanding navy um, and you do want it to go further afield, where would be the logical places? And from our point of view, to construct a massive civilian port requires years of patient investment, not only in terms of the economics of it, but in building the relationship. So you cannot build one of these huge ports in sort of West or Central Africa without becoming ingrained in, in, the, par in the partner country, in the host country where the port is, is going to be built. So from our point of view, it would probably be unusual for China to think about a naval base in a place where it has not made these types of investments. So uh, from our point of view, it was looking at where sort of the correlation might be in terms of the amount invested. So we talk about, for example, um, Freetown, Sierra Leone, where um, China has put in some $750 million for the port, um, the, the Queen Elizabeth II port in Freetown, $750 million in a country where the total GDP is $4 billion. So that is a massive amount of leverage into that country. Um, and China is, of course, um, has been very successful at also building relationships with the elites, with political parties, with the media, et cetera. So if China was then going to think about having a naval base in West Africa, any of these places um, along the coast where it's made these enormous investments would seem to be the more logical choices um, than somewhere starting afresh where there is no economic in investment, especially given that these economic investments, again, are coming from official entities. So they're not coming from a John Deere or a Caterpillar, an American company that just happens to have been invested in, a, in an overseas port. It's coming from organizations, entities, which are ultimately reporting to the Chinese government. Uh, James, do we have any more? Yeah, let's go with another online question, please. Do you think that China's future locations for naval bases will mimic the location of US bases, for example, their base in Djibouti? Uh, I guess the first thing, when I, when I look at this, and I've been looking at this question for many years, it's not, it's not from that perspective. It's from the perspective of what operational need drives a base. And for still today, nothing's really changed. The main operational focus is on a, a war over Taiwan. So when looking at that, that's what guides the bases. And the type of capabilities that the Chinese Navy now has, does that inform the type of bases? So the new ships they have, like the new carrier, the Type 3, uh, the Renhai, these ships have a depth requirement. They have a length requirement. They have a fuel requirement. And they also only have so many days of endurance, both in combat as well in peacetime, that's measured in a couple of weeks, several weeks. Uh, so that tells me if you just do the time distance, you look at where those operations would have to be um, from a military conflict, which is, would be Taiwan, the Philippine Sea is front and foremost of that in the distant ops, 
And then the ge geopolitical part, if you're going to try and influence the Indian Ocean because you want to secure your access to markets in peacetime. In wartime, everything's going to go into the Philippine Sea and the East and South China Sea around Taiwan. And so that's, that's where the bases would be. And that in my calculus, which is a little different, um, is I look at places like Riem in Cambodia as a place to reload munitions, not a place to do repairs, getting get out quick. Uh, you also have a base there, a naval base that's by an ally or close to an ally. Solomon Islands, if you're going to be sustaining operations to interdict US shipping, makes a lot of sense to use these anchorages to reload and restock with food and maybe some fuel. But if you have nuclear submarines operating out in the Pacific, getting in and getting out quick to just reload the food, because you don't need fuel for a nuclear submarine that's going out and sinking US auxiliaries and uh, logistics ships, makes more sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I would agree as well. I mean, I think you know China has stated that the Indo-Pacific, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean are uh, strategic priorities geographically. There's the idea of protecting their sea lines of communication, which again, the major ones cross the, cross the Indian Ocean, come through the Malacca Strait, Straits of Hormuz, et cetera. Um, breaking these island chains, these perceived island chains um, that, that contain China, I think are all important. And then I think to Brent's point as well, um, intercepting where the US might send re reinforcements from along these different sort of areas. So it might come from the Mediterranean, it might come from the Indian Ocean, the Gulf, et cetera, um, would also be sort of high priorities, which again is where the Indian Ocean comes into it. There's also, you know, we, we were always thinking too about, you know, they also want to balance India um, within the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. as well. And so there's a somewhat a fight for regional hegemony within, within the Indian Ocean too, as to who's gonna be. So I think the answer to that question was no. That they they put their bases where they suits them, and not so much where it would suit us. For is a different looking at the world in a different way. So uh, we could probably go on here for a while. Is it a really quick question? All right, let's do it really quickly. Thank you for the talk. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you said there is no direct causality between where China's putting its bases, but are you seeing any tipping points of where China is slowly kind of moving out of just having the economic relations that would make you think that they're moving more towards naval bases within those areas or the ports that you listed in the report? Um, not necessarily. I mean, there's clearly, as, as I was mentioning before, there's clearly more of a, a broader geostrategic focus that, that China has that's aligned to the economic. Um, so I think there, the, the thinking is probably that these two are sort of more um, interconnected than they have been in, in the past. And clearly, because of the pandemic and because of domestic economic conditions as well, clearly China is thinking, reassessing the BRI, how successful it's been, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and what they, what they potentially want to do next. And I think these other priorities, as the US and allies push back on some of these potential um, expansion efforts of, of the Chinese military, I think it's all going to sort of, you know, coalesce w within sort of a, a calculus within within China itself. Great, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have run out of our allocated time. We will be posting the video of this event to our website here in just a, a day or two. So I encourage you to share that with your friends. To our guests, let's give them a round of applause. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you to a future Heritage event. In the meanwhile, have a great rest of your day, please.